Hey everybody, I wanted to share a little bit of information about today's episode. Uh, today I'm interviewing Dr. Joe Lucician from uh, the University of British Columbia. Uh, this is a bit of a special interview for me as Joe was my uh, thesis supervisor and mentor during, uh, well I was working on my master's degree at UBC. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time with Joe and really got to know him and he became a really great support. He was also one of my BCBA supervisors. Um, so Joe's had a really strong influence on a lot of my work and uh, a lot of the ways I approach things and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, today's episode, uh, like many, is a bit of a longer one and I know many of you have uh, uh, given me some feedback in, in that regard. I, I do. We do tend to ramble on quite a bit on our episodes and uh, Joe's is, is, is certainly no exception, and it's, it's definitely the longest episode I've ever recorded, uh, clocking it close to three hours. Uh, now, I don't want to uh, force you folks to uh, have to listen to three hours straight of a podcast and, and potentially you know get tired out or whatnot. So I'm going to try and uh, split today's episode into two parts. So for the first part will go for about an hour and a half. It'll have three secret words. And then we'll release the next part, hopefully uh, next week. Um, um, with uh, three more secret words. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, thanks again for listening, and I really hope you enjoy uh, today's episode and our discussion. Cheers. Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today, I am very honored and privileged to have uh, Dr. Joseph Lucician on the show with us. Uh, Joe was my, um, uh, my, my thesis uh, supervisor when I was doing my master's degree uh, about six or seven years ago, and... Uh, as well, you know, uh, we've we've uh, so we and we've developed a, a, a relationship through that and through over the years. And he's just been a, he's been a great influence on my work and the work of my company and many many of my colleagues that um, uh, some of which you've seen in some of you know probably the first ten or so episodes of the podcast. Most of those folks uh, were were. Uh, Probably students at the University of British Columbia, where uh, where Joe is um, uh, a professor. So, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you for your very gracious introduction. You are welcome. So, uh, what I always like to start with with folks is uh, is hearing you know a, a, a bit of an origin story. And I know you and I kind of uh, uh, about sort of kind of how you got in the field and kind of got to where you are now. And when you and I were talking sort of before we hit record. You mentioned you actually kind of have two origin stories, so I'd love to hear them both. Uh, thank you. I'm happy to share them with you. Um, I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois, um, and I think my first original story, origin story begins in Chicago. My next origin story um, begins when I went to university in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, back in the 1970s. So... I lived in a neighborhood, and the first origin story has to do with my work in the area of behavior disorders. I'm the, the coordinator of the behavior disorders concentration in the um, Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. And I'm also a member 
of the Autism Developmental Disabilities Concentration uh, in our faculty. And most of my research work is with families of children with developmental disabilities, including autism. So I have these two sort of parallel origin stories. The first one um, has to do with growing up in this neighborhood on the northwest side of Chicago, where there were a number of young people who engaged in different forms of violence. Um, I don't know if you have heard of the play called Grease. Mm -hmm. It became a movie. John Travolta was the, one of the stars of that movie. But that play was actually written by a person in my neighborhood. Oh, wow. Um, and it then became a play, and then it became a movie. Hmm. And the um, he was a greaser, and I was a duper. This is when I'm a teenager. And the greasers wore black clothing and pointy black shoes, and sometimes they had a, a chain for their belt, actually a metal chain as their belt. Um, and they uh, really – and my father owned a grocery store, a mom-and-pop store – and they like to harass my father and my brother, my older brother, um, and shoot BB guns through our windows on the weekend and things of that nature. Hmm. And they would engage in acts of aggression toward us, which we had to deal with. And they did it toward my older brother, who was a big guy, and toward me, and I was a skinny, skinny guy. <laughs> and... Um, because I was skinny and didn't have sort of sort of this force of presence, I had to figure out how to de-escalate their aggressive aggressiveness toward me when they directed it at me. You know, I was 14, 15 years old, maybe 16. So I can tell you two stories related to that. Um, I'm walking down the sidewalk, and three of these young greasers are coming up the sidewalk toward me. And they're forming a wall now. You know, the sidewalk is only so f so f many feet wide. And I can see they're forming a wall. They're going to try and force me onto the grass as a show of power. But they also escalated because as I approached, the man in the middle, the young boy in the middle, pulled out a switchblade. You know, the one that you press a button, the, the, the knife switches wow. out, maybe six inches long. And he started patting in, in his hand in front of me. So now he's, he's being intimidating, right? And now I'm right in front of him. And so what do you do, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is what I did. I said, hey, man, that switchblade is so beautiful. <laughs> Look at that shiny handle. I mean, the, 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 the shiny brown handle. It just shimmers in the light. <laughs> Can I see that? And he actually put it in my hand. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I took the switchblade and I press it down and clip and, and this is a this is a really beautiful switchblade man thanks so much for showing it to me i gave it back to him and just kept walking oh my gosh what what a shock so that was my <laughs> that that's my first lesson in stimulus control right. i mean i didn't know the term then but i was i didn't show fear i basically created a different stimulus equivalence arrangement mm -hmm. right i'm going to turn this as you're sharing something with me that's beautiful oh my goodness and he responded in kind. And so that was that one story. And then another time, I'm in front of my father's store, and this big guy, he was really hefty. He has, I think he took his chain off his belt and he started swinging it at me, <laughs> right? He's going to 
beat me with his metal yeah, chain. Yeah. So I immediately embraced him and gave him this big hug and says, oh, man, it's so good to see oh you. How are you? It's been a while. And he's taking this chain and he's swinging. It's going around his, my, his legs, my legs, hitting his legs. It's going nowhere. And then he starts laughing because it's really ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I start laughing and, you know, it's all de Oh, my gosh. And so I was a little skinny, scrawny kid. I, I couldn't fight with them. So I had to find some other way to de-escalate them. And that's what I discovered. Growing up in Chicago, you know, you, you are often, not often, but often enough facing certain things like this, sure. you know, riding the subway at night, you know, there's these tall buildings with these little narrow alleyways mm-hmm. and you have to be careful when you pass them at night because someone might be in the shadows waiting for you. And so you learn these survival skills mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what I learned mm-hmm. growing up in Chicago. And again, you know, now that I reflect on it uh, with my knowledge of behavior analysis, I, I was wor- working with the construct of stimulus control. I wasn't going to present fear because that's an, a trigger for escalation in, a, in people who are aggressive. Mm and want to harm you, you just sort of, you know, turn it around and turn it into something different. Um, and that's how I managed to survive my teenagehood in that neighborhood. My brother, on the other hand, <clears throat> he was big. He was a weightlifter. He was six foot one. And he would actually try and fight with them. And they, they would, <laughs> well, they beat him up so badly, he had to go to the hospital once. He had a detached retina. Wow. So I could see that that model of, you know, facing them with, equal force and power wasn't going to work, especially if you had three of them facing one person. So that was my first, um, that's my first origin story. I think that's how I got into the area of behavior disorders because I always seem to be able to de-escalate people who are aggressive. Before you tell the second story, I mean, that's a great first story. And it uh, it reminds me of, uh, I just recently did a podcast interview. Uh, It may be released maybe by the time this one comes out with, um, Dr. Kim Crosland, she's a she's a, at the University of South South Florida and does does some research and kind of positive positive behavior support and and uh, but particularly she does a lot of work with uh, um, uh, folks in kind of foster care and runaways and that sort of thing. Really interesting stuff. But she she also did a study on um, uh, where she did a sort of a, a an in a, a behavioral skills training and kind of in situ training, kind of based on Milton Berger's stuff, um, teaching adults with developmental disabilities to respond to bullying, um, uh, and uh, and gave them sort of a four step kind of uh, uh, you know uh, procedure. Um, uh, and how they could kind of respond to, I think this was sort of in the context of a, of a group home and ro- uh-huh. roommates bullying each other and how to respond. I, I don't know. I think, I think your, your story of growing up in Chicago, I don't know if, I don't know if those, those uh, techniques would still be applicable today. I think they might be. Um, 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 I, I think that, that could make for a great sort of uh, bullying response training package for, uh, you know, for, uh, for a teenager struggling. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that those people who are aggressive yeah. or who are bullying, they are enticed by expressions of fear right. or anxiety. That actually excites yeah. them. They like that. They want to see more yeah. of it. Yeah. And so it spurs them yeah. on. If you respond in an opposite way, yeah. 
I think there's a certain space you create for yeah. them, right? It's, it's like I'm not, you, I, I don't know what to do, but you're not responding in the way that people have typically responded, and then that gives you an opportunity to to redirect them. And any any um, idea, sort of? I mean, you, you were 16, 15 is a long time ago, but how how you came up with that idea versus just running away screaming? Like I, I just, I just, well, that's I just can't imagine a, a teenage kid thinking, "Yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give this guy a big hug." <laughs> it's awesome, but I just can't imagine it. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you say yeah. that because you know, the I'm gonna digress to some psychological research. Sure. But as you, as everyone who's listening probably knows, American psychologists in studying how we respond to threats. They've come up with this theory of called fight, flight, or freeze, yes. right? And well, I didn't fight. I didn't f- engage in flight, and I didn't freeze, right? Well, the Dalai Lama was recent was in the last few years visiting with American psychologists, mm. and. He in this conversation, he says, "You know, you American psychologists have come up with this really interesting theory about how people respond to threats. You know, they either fight, or they flee, or they freeze. Mm-hmm. But in Tibetan psychology, we have 25 responses to a threat, and most of them are spiritual. Mm-hmm. For example, we contemplate the threat, we study it." Or we witness the threat. We 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 see it with no emotional response to it. We simply clearly see the threat. That's called witnessing. And then he gave some other examples. So it you know I don't know, but maybe maybe my response fit one of those categories. Um, but um, there are other ways of responding to threats than what American psychologists have discovered. Mm-hmm. And other cultures, I think, have a much more nuanced understanding of that than American culture. Hmm, Interesting. Keep in mind that, you know, we as Americans doing positivist science, which is also called reductionist science, we have to be able to see what we're measuring, right? Hmm. But there might be more subtle phenomena operating that is more difficult to measure. Yeah. And I think maybe those in Tibet who've been attending to these phenomena for thousands of years may have maybe have discovered something that we haven't yet. Fair point. And so the second story, the, the Oregon's, the Oregon origin story. Yeah. Um, so I went to school at the university of Illinois in Champaign Urbana in the 1970s. And I got my degree in psychology mm. at that time. Behavior analysis was just beginning to be um, recognized and, the University of Illinois is one of the places where it was really being studied and brought into our understanding of how to well to understand behavior and change it. And I took my first course in behavior analysis in 1974. And I began uh, working with, I, I got a, some work as a um, research assistant um, with someone doing a study on stimulus generalization with children with developmental disabilities. And I also, I don't quite remember how we met, but I met a person named David Marholan, 
who was getting his doctorate in educational psychology, and he was really interested in the phenomenon of stimulus generalization with individuals with disability. Mm -hmm. And he kind of took me under his wing. He saw some promise in me. Um, you know, I was in my early 20s and taking courses in psychology. He introduced me to his colleague, David Pomerantz, who was doing his doctoral dissertation on stimulus generalization. And so I got introduced to, you know, behavior analysis, to the notion of stimulus generalization, all of which interested me because I was basically a nerd. And that was all was, I thought that all that was cool. <laughs> also, I, I, I wanted to learn practical knowledge. So I entered what's called at that time, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, let's see, the, um, mental health workers one program mm. where I was getting trained to be a mental health worker. And I took two, I did two practicum in one uh, internship, all informed by behavior analysis. For example, I, I was in a school in a building that Sidney Bijou was the director mm. of. And of course, Sidney Bijou is a famous uh, psychologist also related to behavior analysis. And I worked with kids with, autism and develop and, and behavior disorders. And then I, my practicum was working in the Champaign-Urbana Mental Health Center and their crisis intervention program. And my supervisor was Nancy Rapp, who was getting her doctorate in um, uh, social work. Mm. And they were very behavioral. The social work program was teaching behavior analysis to their social workers among other things. And so I was taught to basically do a behavior analysis and build a support plan. And I was working with a two boys living with their mother in a trailer mm. just on the outskirts of Champaign-Urbana. And I get up early in, my, in the morning, ride my bicycle out there, do the assessment, build a plan, help with implementation. I even did a multiple baseline design mm. In, 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 in gathered data, clinical data, and that was my, my practicum assignment. So I was introduced to behavior analysis uh, in my early 20s and the 1970s when it was really beginning to come into our professional um, consciousness mm -hmm. and practice. And Illinois, University of Illinois is one of the, you know, the, the forefront universities studying this and bringing it into our, our work, um, helping individuals with challenging behaviors, whether they have a disability or a beha behavior disorder. And, and so through that experience, I was you know, basically initially trained at that time in this area. And then David Marholan got a job at Boston University working with Sid Murray Sidman, who was of course a seminal figure in the field of behavior analysis. And then there was a job opening at the Spalding Youth Center in New Hampshire, just 90 miles north of Boston, where David Marholan worked as a professor. And he encouraged me to take a job there. And I did. I, I went there and I interviewed for the job and they offered me a position either with children with behavior disorders in their behavior disorder sort of cottages or children with autism in their autism cottage because it was a residential treatment center, the Spalding Youth Center. And the reason why David Marholan encouraged me to apply to this work is they were behavioral, but not only behavioral, they were very interested in other 
um, interesting areas of um, human behavior and change. For example, um, they introduced, this is back in the mid seventies. Of course, you know, the counterculture is very much alive and these are very young people and very creative, um, interesting leaders you know, coming out of universities, providing leadership within the Spalding Center. And they were introducing like yoga, like for hmm. example, the children in the um, behavior disorder units, meaning they were there because they were engaging in some severe behavioral challenges, but they didn't have a disability. They would do behavior analytic work with them, but they also taught them yoga, right? And so um, it was a very interesting place to work. It was a, there was a kind of counterculture creative spirit there looking at some Eastern traditions combined with behavior analysis. I thought that was fascinating. Hmm. And so I, you know, when they offered me the job, I said, yep. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. And, uh, and it was wonderful. I, I loved working there. Our, our um, executive director was Wells Hively. And he um, came from Boston University and he studied with B.F. Skinner. And because of that, B.F. Skinner would visit the Spalding Youth Center and, you know, mm. speak to us. And I was once invited to do a presentation of our data from the, I was, I, I became the data treatment coordinator. Mm. So I was at the, at the ripe old age of 23. I'm responsible for all the behavior support plans mm. for the children with autism You're doing the behavior analysis and building support plans and also charting their data on six cycle charts because uh, the Spalding Center was very committed to uh, the direct, the, um, precision teaching mm -hmm. model of data collection. And I was responsible for, for, for creating data catchers and, and summarizing all the data on six cycle mm. charts and showing them at a weekly meeting, you know, our progress, mm -hmm. uh, both across all children in our unit and also individual children who were focused on in terms of like, how is this behavior support plan going? Mm -hmm. Let's look at the data and make some database decisions. And that was my job. So Dr. Skinner was invited to learn about what we were doing in this unit for children with autism. There was like about maybe eight or nine children, ages three to eight years old with us. Um, and I did, I organized the, my, my slides. I did a, uh, a presentation using, you know, uh, the old projectors with the acetate, you know, um, uh, film that you put on the show on a right, screen. Right. There was no, there was no PowerPoint back then. Um, and he was wonderful. He was really encouraging. He looked at data patterns, asked some questions. You know, he had some really useful insights about the data. And it, he was really very nice and very supportive. Um, and I also remember something. And so, 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 that, so I was very much um, in the middle of this sort of behavior analytic movement and at a very, a place very creative. And they were approaching this, this knowledge, which has just been had begun to take off because, you know, the first journal of applied behavior analysis in 1968. Um, and so it's still, you know, relatively a new, a new approach to treatment. Um, one of the things I, I remember really well, and this still makes an impression on me, and I think it definitely relates to why I embrace positive behavior support, um, is he came to our school. I wasn't there at this mm. time. Um, but I read this in the 1978 annual report. They, they had they had put a transcript of his speech 
which he gave in the gymnasium. And he said, you know, we have to build communities based on positive reinforcement. Mm. But that's really hard to do because punishment works so quickly. It suppresses behavior, right? Yep. And so we still use punishment. But we really, really need to move toward building entire communities based on positive reinforcement. The reason why it's hard to do, it's not only that punishment works quickly, positive reinforcement works slowly. Mm. It takes a long time to strengthen behavior mm -hmm. through positive reinforcement. So all of you here at Spalding Youth Center are really trying to create this community built on positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And so I admire that and I encourage that. And that really made an impression mm. on me because he's talking about communities, mm -hmm. not just behavior, mm -hmm. not just like one or two people or a classroom, entire communities based on positive reinforcement. Now let's fast forward to a recent book by Anthony Bigland, mm. a, counsel, a, a, a community psychologist working out of the Oregon Research Institute. Mm. He wrote a really wonderful book recently called The Nurturing Effect. Mm. And basically his message is this, you know, decades of research in behavioral science, our field, have, have, have come to this um, recognition, this realization. We have to build nurturing environments mm -hmm. everywhere with children, in families, in schools, in work settings, in work groups. We have to build nurturing environments everywhere because that is what allows people to become pro-social. Mm. And we have to remove coercion from the way we change people's behavior. Mm. We have to stop using negative reinforcement and punishment to change people's behavior because that causes all kinds of difficulties along the way. And that's what behavioral science has taught us over the last 50 or 60 years. I do encourage those listening to get his book. It's called The Nurturing Effect. And, and his argument is we really have to embed positive reinforcement richly and deeply in all of the contexts we're hmm. in. Now, isn't that interesting? That makes a lot of sense, yeah. B.F. Skinner said that in 1978. And someone who's been studying how do you create whole healthy communities for decades? That's Anthony Bigland, mm. he's a community psychologist, makes the same conclusion. And that's what positive behavior support and those who work to promulgate it argue as well. And so I, I find that quite compelling. Yes, that's really interesting. And so, um, so my origin story, uh, the next step in it and why I came to Oregon yeah. was, as you know, I was introduced to the concept of stimulus control, <laughs> maybe when I was starting when I was 14, when I didn't know it, to, um, to my undergraduate education. And now I'm working with the children, these children with autism. Mm -hmm. And I was there for three years. And what fascinated me was I could teach them to do all kinds of stuff, play with toys, get dressed, all this stuff, but they couldn't generalize. Mm. Right, they do it with mm -hmm. me, but not with other people. They do it with, with these toys, but not with those toys, which were quite within the same, you know, response class. And I realized this, this was a st stimulus generalization problem because I knew that because I was introduced to that concept. And so I got this burning interest, this really nerdy interest, in going back to school to learn how to teach these kids to generalize. Mm. Now I originally 
was aiming toward a career in, as a clinical psychologist. Right. You know, I was going to apply to a doctoral program in clinical psychology. But I took such an interest in how can I really teach generalized skills to these children that my my career path changed to um, special education and learning how to support children with autism and other developmental disabilities. And so and also children with behavior disorders. And I I talked to my um, my boss about this. His name was David Freshy. And I asked him, well, so David, what would you do if you were me? And he said, I'd go to Oregon. He said, there's some really good people at Oregon doing some really interesting stuff. And I said, okay, that's really, sounds good to me. Hmm. Of course, I applied to more than one school. I, I, tr I applied to a master's program in special education at the University of Illinois, which I was from, the University of Washington, which I know also had some really good people, and the U University of Oregon. And um, I was accepted to all three programs, but I decided to go to Oregon because mm. something in me said, I've, got to, I've just got to go to Oregon. Mm. Um, this little voice was saying, yeah, that's the right place for you. Mm. And so I arrive in – so now I'm in Oregon. It's 1979, the fall. I don't have – I have enough money for one term, mm. right? I just jumped off the cliff and hope – and I hoped that my parachute would sort of – appear mm -hmm. before I hit the ground. Um, and within two weeks of being there, doc, Dr. Horner and another person named Dr. Bellamy, who were leaders of the special education master's mm. program in severe disabilities, which is what I entered, a master's program in severe, master's of science in severe disabilities. And Rob Horner was one of the leaders of it. And person Thomas Bellamy was one of the leaders of it. They said, you know, we have these monies from the federal government. They will give you a free tuition and also a stipend to live on. I think $700 a month. At that time, that's a lot mm -hmm. of money. And I said, okay, I'll apply. You know, I filled out the form, turned it in. And a week later, they said, we've given you one of these scholarships. Wow. So I was good. I was able to complete that program without having to flip burgers somewhere. For uh, the parachute years. opened. Or, or, the parachute opened and I, I came in for a soft landing. Um, and then what was really interesting, and this is why I think this is a interesting um, origin story, is in one of my first meetings with Dr. Horner, he explained to me what he was planning on doing because he had just gotten his doctorate in 1978 and was beginning to start his program of research. He says, Joe, I'm going to be, I'm beginning a program of research I, I wish to develop a technology of generalization promotion. Mm. And so I said, oh, now I know I am here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I did my master's thesis, as did all of the doctoral and master's students at that time, on general case programming. Mm. And it, across 10 years, uh, Dr. Horner and his graduate students published at least seven, eight, nine studies mm -hmm of general case programming, a technology of generalization promotion with individuals with severe disabilities. I chose um, a very prosaic skill set, dust mopping. <laughs> um, can I teach generalized dust mopping to teenagers with severe disabilities in a high school setting? And my, my immediate colleague, Jeff Sprague, he chose um, 
uh, vending machine use. Mm. And you may or may not know that that study was completed. It was gorgeous. It's one of the finest demonstrations of generalization promotion I think ever done. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked with six teenagers teaching them how to use vending machines all over Eugene, Oregon. And sure enough, you know, if, if he taught one, they couldn't generalize to the others. Mm -hmm. when, he, when he taught three that were really the same, right, mm -hmm. they couldn't generalize much mm -hmm. either. But when he did the general case analysis, and it's like three vending machines that sampled the stimulus and response requirements of all of the vending machines in the, the structural universe of what we call, well, the, the universe of, of vending mm -hmm. machines in Eugene, Oregon, which he analyzed, um, they were able to do all of them. Mm. They were only trained on three, but they were able to generalize to all of the mm. ones that were non-trained, which is really cool. And in my study, um, my, the, the three students in my study, two of them generalized to, I taught them in three classrooms that were sampled a range of all classrooms mm. in terms of stimulus and response requirements. And two of them generalized beautifully. It was really lovely to see. And one didn't, mm. the last person in my multiple baseline design across, um, across participants. And it's because they were in baseline too long they stipulated under error patterns, and my general case training couldn't break that past history of mm -hmm. learning. So, from my point of view, I, you know, I wasn't ambitious in, in in a certain way. I was just excited that I did the study, and Dr. Horner was my advisor, and I learned so much. And we also learned that don't keep a person in baseline too long when you're doing a general case mm -hmm. training study, because if they make those errors in all of these non-trained routines too right. often, they you may have a really hard time breaking that learning history. Yeah, of course. And so all the subsequent studies made sure their design didn't do that. And they were subsequently successful. Every other general case study was successful and published. Mine wasn't, but that, that was fine with me. I learned so mm -hmm. much from it. It was tremendously exciting. And as, as prosaic as dust mopping is, you might say, well, why did you choose dust mopping? I was given a choice. Joe, you know, you could do it on street crossing mm -hmm. or you can do it on a vocational mm. skill. So I thought about that. So what does an error look like <laughs> when you're crossing a street? <laughs> yep, death. Right? Yeah, yeah. Injury or death. I said, well, maybe I'll do dust mopping. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you'll stub a foot once in a oh while, gosh, but that's, that's about so it. Well, to be fair, I mean, there was a courageous young man. From, well, I was wondering, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, but Rob Horner wanted to do one dust mopping, and my classroom was where the, where the study was done with my yeah. students. And there was a wonderful young man from Canada, from Victoria. His first name, I believe, was David. Yeah. Um, and he did it. He did the general case study on street crossing. Wow. And it's published. And I just didn't have the courage. He did, and I'm sure they had safeguards. Like if the kid, if the kid made the air and stepped into the street, someone would be there to block him. Yeah. You know, they had like a confederate there to stop and keep him safe. But I didn't want to take the chance. So that's my origin story. That's how I got to Oregon. That's how I got focused on individuals with developmental disabilities and autism. And that's why you know the whole notion of stimulus control and generalization promotion has been such a big part of my mm -hmm. my academic way of thinking 
and also informs my embrace of this thing called positive behavior support. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words. Enter those three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com. The first secret word is Zen. Z-E-N. There, that's, that's, a, that's a good story. And, and I've, I've heard the, the, of course, taking courses with you and just other conversations. Of, I've heard the dust mopping and the, and the vending machine stories a few times. And I agree, the vending machine study is amazing. I, I, you know, I, I mentioned to someone the other day, um, uh, younger behavior analysts were talking about, I think it was on social media and we we're just talking about, we we're talking about general case programming. I said, this is that, that, I said, you know, that, that's the piece I think that's missing from whatever their question was. And they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. Um, and, and, and it made me think that, well, I do know that you definitely in, embed a lot of generalization strategies in your, in your work and you have, you know, for years and years, you know, your studies don't actually have, you know, that's just a sort of a portion, you know, a portion of your, your sort of interventions. It's, it's not sort of the, the you know, the, 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 the title, I guess, of, of, of those articles. I haven't seen much research on general case programming beyond, you know, the, that, the, the slew of studies that were kind of done in the 80s. Have you or do, do you know why? Like, it just, it's just so interesting that they've done that work, but it really hasn't carried over everywhere. That's a really great question, um, Ben. I actually have been, a, because I'm the nerd that I am, I've mm -hmm. been paying attention to this literature. And actually, there has been a strand. It, it's probably a fairly modest strand, but it's mm. it's a steady strand of research mm -hmm. in general case programming. It's it, it's what we call sy sy systematic replication, mm. where they do it with other populations in other settings. Yeah. So they're, they're, I don't know the names of all of the authors of these studies, but I sure. can put you all, I can point listeners in, in, in some good directions. Mm. So from that early work, others began to do work on general case programming for other skill sets, like Robert O'Neill did some studies on general case language training. Mm. And, and that's published. Mm. Um, if, you, if you write general case programming, Robert O'Neill, you'll pick up those articles. Okay. Some others in the field focus on academic skills. What does general case you know, teaching general case math skills or mm -hmm. or um, spelling skills look like, and they mm. they they publish those works. Mm. So we're, we're looking at other populations. You know, they don't have a disability, but they're having difficulty with certain academic skills. Mm. Um, and just as a side note, mm -hmm. you know, general case programming was originally de developed by Siegfried Engelman and Douglas Carnine. Mm. It's actually embedded in direct instruction. I didn't know that. Direct instruction reading in direct instruction math, those curricula are based on general case programming. Siegfried Engelman, who, who recently passed away, bless his soul, rest his soul, he did this brilliant analysis of how to teach general case reading or general case math skills and turn it into curricula. And Doug Carline was part of that. Mm. And a recent issue of applied of behavior analysis in practice and a recent issue of, of um, perspectives on be behavior, which are mm -hmm. both published within ABAI. Right. Um, 
are celebrating direct instruction. So I do mm. encourage the listeners to, to, to get those uh, issues which have just come out and mm -hmm. read those articles because they do a beautiful job of speaking to the brilliance of Dr. Uh, well, of Siegfried Engelman and, and Doug Carnine in creating this technology of instruction and how incredibly valuable it is. In general case, programming is embedded in it. What Rob mm -hmm. Horner did is, of course, he's at Oregon. He probably studied with Dr. S with Siegfried Engelman and Doug Carnine in his doctoral program and said, let's take this way of thinking, this way of analysis, and apply it to edu the to curriculum design for individuals with disability. Mm. So he didn't create this idea. He simply mm. said, let's take this idea and its rules and apply it mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. our population when it comes to life skills or when it comes to vocational skills. Mm -hmm. Now, since then, others have replicated it in what's really, I mean, it's its all cool, but now someone in the 1990s said, you know, let's apply this to um, – staff mm. so let's 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 do a general case analysis of what staff need to know in residential services mm. and joseph ducharme did that study he's at the university of toronto mm, if, if right. you look up ducharme joseph ducharme general case programming you'll get his study where it's a, it's a magnificent study he shows that if you train the staff with one example of the key skill sets, they won't be able to generalize. Mm. If you train them with two or three examples that are pretty much the same, right, they won't generalize mm -hmm. very much. Mm -hmm. But if you gen do a general case analysis of the instructional universe of the skill sets and all the different – well, not all of them, but most of the stimulus requirement, stimulus conditions and response requirements that they have to respond to to be able to be skillful, mm -hmm. and then you sample – very carefully across the range of these examples and train those examples, just mm. your general case examples, you will get generalization to the non-trained examples of how to mm. behave skillfully as a you know a residential staff person. And that's what he found. Cool. And it's a really magnificent study. It was brilliantly done. He's using a multiple baseline design across um, staff. And what's the first study... He, he did, okay, baseline, you know, they can't use these skills. Mm. And then uh, single instance training, can't do it still. Uh, multiple exemplar training, like three examples of the skill, but they're all, mm -hmm. there's no mm -hmm. difference between them. Like they're all sort of analogous. A little bit of progress, but not much. And then general case programming, voila, they all met criteria. You know, one at a time across the base, multiple baseline design. And then someone said, well, you know, there's all this, you know, multiple treatment interaction effect. So, you know, really they had all this, you know, they had single instance mm. training and multiple exemplar training. So sure. that's why they generalized. So mm. he, he anticipated that. So then he had three other participants, maybe four, where he went right from baseline to general case programming immediately. Mm. And sure enough, the moment he gen did general case programming for each of these staff, they all popped to criteria Wow! at the point of intervention which proves beyond a shadow of a doubt within this design and its rules of evidence that general case programming promoted generalization immediately. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's really cool. So, 
and, and now I'm going to even go further, and this is even more exciting to me because all, you know, all my research has, has been with families of children with with developmental disabilities, autism, and very severe problem behavior. Yep. Uh, Ward um, Ward Horner and Sturmey, um, Peter Sturmey is at um, uh, Queens College in New York City. Mm. He's a really nice guy. He's a very fine behavior analyst. Mm-hmm. He did a study of general case parent training. Mm. The first one ever done. I mean, this is really exciting. And he says, I'm going to teach them uh, discrete trial training with their ch- children with autism. I'm going to say, what's the instructional universe of the discrete trial training examples? I'm going to carefully ex- select training examples where I train the parents how to do it. And the rest of them are non-trained generalization examples. And then I'm going to give them the non-trained generalization examples and see if they can do them. And they were able to. So that's general case parent training. Um, And recently too, um, there is a professor, a young professor at Brock University Mm. who is leading her master's and doctoral students through a series of studies of general case parent training. Mm. So if you go into the Brock University site, Mm-hmm. And you look for um, this this young woman professor. Um, I'm sure it'll she'll talk about that work. I don't sure. quite remember the name, but it's really really wonderful work. I'm sure it's being done now. It's maybe getting ready for publication. But I, I had a chance to be a, a discussant of three or four of her students' work at a recent ABAI conference. I think it was earlier this year. Hmm. and it's brilliant work cool i'll definitely yeah. check that out I, yeah we've had a few uh brock brock uh professors on the podcast so it'd be, it'd be great to add another one so I'll, yeah well these are i think I'll might have been up. maurice feldman is at brock university and yes. these might be his former students gotcha yeah and so you know maurice is a really creative um thoughtful um very humanistic behavior analyst and so um you know he's doing beautiful work at brock university that's really cool and raising this new generation of behavior analysts um so so um well that's the story about general case programming yeah no that's great that that that, that that definitely answers my question i'm glad to see it there's sort of that 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 work continues and of course we're we're going to dive into your work a little deeper here shortly and, and sort of hear about a little bit of that as well. I'd, I'd like to know kind of before we kind of get into some of the, the, the research you've been doing, which has been just phenomenal uh, is um, I'd like to know. And, and I don't, I, maybe it wasn't even a sort of a, a, a specific moment in time, or it was a sort of, you, or you just sort of, kind of fell into it because you were working with a lot of these folks, but where, where in your sort of career path did you, were you first sort of introduced to the idea of, uh, of, of positive behavior support? Well, that's really an interesting question. Um, Well, I remember when I was, 
at the Spalding Youth Center. And again, we're being led by some pretty um, seminal figures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, B.F. Skinner would visit us. Ogden Lindsay used to visit us. Mm. Um, we, I remember sitting in uh, this Wells Hively's home. I think it was a winter night, and uh, Ogden Lindsay was visiting. They were friends. Mm. And of course, you know, we're using six cycle charts and I'm responsible for collecting all this data. Mm. Uh, you know, red red little X's for problem behavior, mm-hmm. uh, green dots for acceleration targets. Um, using the acetate where I can show it up on an overhead projector. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember Ogden Lindsay, uh, he's wearing a, it must have been summer because he was wearing a seersucker suit, you know, those that white and blue striped street from like <laughs> yeah, 1920. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And I swear to you, he was wearing a straw hat. Oh my gosh. And he had his lovely uh, white toupee, his little beard and mustache. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he looked like, like a gentleman out of the 1920s. Oh and he'd gosh. regale us with stories of early behavior analysis in, in Lawrence, Kansas. Wow. Um, it was wonderful to sit there. I, I literally at his feet because I was on the floor. Everyone else was in chairs. And, there was a, and, and, and he would tell these stories. So we were really um, exposed to some very forward thinkers. Mm-hmm. And we were doing things which then, you know, I just took for granted. But now I realize our related to what we do in positive behavior support. I, when I led a process of b- developing a behavior support plan, I would draw up the, the antecedent, the behavior, the consequence. Hmm. And also I would have this general category called the environment. And then we would analyze, you know, what the function of the behavior was. Mm-hmm. And then we'd think, of what can we do to prevent it? What can mm-hmm. we teach? But we'd also talk about how can we improve the environment? Mm. And I didn't know that was called a setting event but or an mm. establishing operation. So we were already thinking in terms of more ecological approach. Mm-hmm. I th- Probably because, you know, the, the leaders of the group who, who were my supervisors were guiding us in this way because mm. they were ahead of the curve perhaps. Mm-hmm. So when I – so that's the way we did it. We would think through a plan that had multiple components and mm. was mostly preventative and re- reinforcement-based. I mean, there were consequences for major problem behavior, but it was mm-hmm. not like punishment. It was like, how can we, you know, not pay off the behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is also, a, you know, part of the way we think now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to Oregon, I had to take a, I was supposed to take a class on behavior analysis, you know, and at that time, behavior analysis was just a bunch of consequences, like reinforce this and do a DRO, DRA, DRL, DRI mm-hmm. for a, for the problem behavior, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like reinforce and extinction. That was the major armature we had, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Because the technology was, that's as far as it got it at that early point in, in this dynamic science called behavior analysis. And I knew at that time that that wasn't sufficient. And so I remember, you know, going up to Dr. Horner and saying, you know, Dr. Horner, I could take this course, but, you know, I've, I've got this background and I've, you know, I've taken courses as an undergraduate. I was a behavior dis- I was a data treatment coordinator for my program. I've written many behavior programs with challenging children. And also, I don't really think the answer lies in really good consequences. I think we should be doing things around, you know, preventing problem behaviors and other things. And his answer was, you don't need to take the course. It's fine. Hmm. So I think that 
the, my time at the Spalding Youth Center gave me a bit of a foundation for where things began to develop um, mm. in the late 80s and 90s around the importance of ant antecedent control. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, I mean, if I, if I understand your story right, it sort of sounds like, you know, it, we, you were sort of in, in, in the audience of, of, you know, some of these really great, you know, leaders in the field, forward-thinking folks in the field. And you folks kind of were, were, were already kind of doing a lot of what we know as, as positive behavior support now, but you, maybe you just didn't call it that. And yeah, so and, then, yeah. And I think it was probably very primitive, you know, because we were just using logic. We didn't right now. I know of a, a, a very detailed conceptual logic right. for considering setting event strategies, antecedent strategies, teaching strategies, and four types of consequence strategies. Yes which would give you a very robust multi-component behavior support plan that would set the stage for success, prevent problem behavior, occasion desired behavior, teach the desired behavior and alternative replacement behavior, reinforce the desired behavior, reinforce the alternative replacement behavior, mm. redirect the minor problem behavior, and not deliver the functional reinforcers of the problem behavior. So that's very systematic. Yes. We were, I think I was operating more logically instead of yeah. really informed by Right. A, a theoretical framework that was developed later. Um, so there, I guess, some intuition involved previously. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, it, the, the sort of the, the concepts of, of PBS aren't, aren't that, you know, uh, it, it's, it's not rocket science in the sense that, you know, you're, uh, if, if we know, kind of, you know, if we kind of know the ABCs of behavior, maybe there's some things we can do, you know, to prevent it. Maybe, you know, you know, you know, if we know this, this individual's, you know, seems to be aggressive when there's lots of loud noise around, then let, let's figure out a way to make the room quieter. You know, it, yeah, it that's it exactly right. It doesn't take a logical sort of framework <laughs> to sort of go, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> that, that will probably help. Um, yeah. That's a real, you know, that point is really important. And we, you know, I try and deliver that message to our students all the time. Mm. If you really allow yourself to understand the setting events that are occurring, the establishing operations that are increasing mm -hmm. the value of different reinforcers, mm -hmm. so thus changing the value of different stimuli, you know, and the behaviors that you're going to emit in the presence of those stimuli, if you really know precisely what those setting events are, if you really know precisely what those antecedent triggers are, you know, or from a behavior analytic language um, uh, world, um, what the discriminative stimuli are for problem behavior that predicts reinforcement, right? Mm -hmm, the antecedent mm -hmm. triggers. If you, if you know what you need, what the child should be doing or the individual should be doing in that situation, meaning what other individuals would be do if they were competent. If mm -hmm. you know what the, what the alternative replacement behavior which is, which is the functionally equivalent behavior that mm -hmm. achieves the same mm -hmm. function, then really it democratizes the process of plan design because logic alone, without a tremendous knowledge of behavior analysis, can mm -hmm. guide you toward a program. So for example, just like you said, if you know the trigger is loud noises, try and decrease loud noises. Mm -hmm. Or... Um, I was just doing some training early this morning uh, with some staff who are doing family-centered PBS as, as their agency method, hmm. and um, we were talking about a, ki a child who engages in problem behavior to get their parental attention when the parents 
busy, you know, cleaning up after supper. Mm. So we, when we ex- examined the setting events, one of them was this mother it works as a police dispatcher, and she's almost and it's totally unpredictable when she's going to be home. Mm-hmm. So this little five-year-old girl with autism who's high functioning never knows when her mother's going to be home. Mm. Now, when you know that, right? What it was the logic? She never knows. The, the mother only knows at the beginning of the week what her schedule is, but never before, right? You know, sometimes it's a swing shift, sometimes it's a night shift, sometimes it's a day shift. It always changes. That's the nature of her work. And it, that can't change unless she gets a new job. So if you know that that is a setting event, because now what that does is it really increases the value of mother's presence when she's home, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. the, the kid never knows when she's going to be home. So she's home now. It's precious. It's precious. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to make the most of it. She's going to become Velcro mom. <laughs> I'm Velcro child. I must be with her every moment because I never know when she's going to be home again. What mm-hmm. would you do there? And if you ask that question to anyone who's just giving it some good rational thought, they would say, well, you know, maybe make the schedule predictable once the mother mm-hmm. knows. Like mm-hmm. maybe a little calendar. Here's the day mm-hmm. I'm going to be home. Here's the time I'm going to be home. Sure. And also, if you know that the value of mom is really high the moment she's actually home, what's mm-hmm. the first thing the mom should do when she comes home? Interact with the kid. Yeah. Spend quality time with your child for 10, 15, 20 minutes before you make supper. Yeah. Or, you know, right after dinner, give her some quality attention before you clean up because that yep. might uh, dissipate the value of parental attention because they got a good dose of it. Yep. Now that isn't the only thing you do, but that would be the setting event considerations based yes. on the logic of those precise understandings of the, the, the setting events that are occurring. Um, likewise, you know, if a parent says like, I work with a child with, with, um, well, one doesn't use this term anymore, but at that time they were labeled with Asperger's syndrome, they were high functioning autism. Mm. And whenever the mother said yup or nope, the kid would just lose it. So very mm-hmm. simple. Don't say yup or nope. Say something else. Right. And so, you know, if you know it, if you know precisely what the antecedent is, mm-hmm. sometimes mere logic can tell you what to do instead. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. it's very valuable to know about the laws of behavior. You, you, that's important. And you also it's important to know the the evidence-based practice that have been developed over time mm-hmm. in terms of setting them in strategies, antecedent control strategies, teaching strategies, and consequence strategies. But at the same time, when you're leading people who don't have this background, mm-hmm. you want to emphasize the logic of it, right? Yep. The, the Aristilian logic of here's the antecedent, what can we do to replace it, right? Right, right. Um, and that's, and then if you if you work with, parents or teachers or teaching assistants or group home staff in that way, you actually generate with them lots of really evidence-based, logical leading strategies without you having to tell people what to do. Because the moment, you know, you tell people what to do, tell people what to do, tell people what to do, you're the boss. They're complying to your expertise, you know, and that can be fine if everyone is willing to do that. But in my experience, that isn't always the case. People sure. have a strong sense of autonomy and they want to do what they want to do. Yep. Despite your expertise and your your knowledge and your your training. So if you can invite them through this process of logically thinking it through within this framework, which you guide, 
mm-hmm. right? Then people can generate strategies with you that are logically linked to the problem that are consistent with the laws of behavior. Does that make sense? The second secret word is survivability. Totally does. So, as, as and, I, and I've spent a little bit of time, kind of you know, over the years, you know, you know, following the the kind of the, the the research in PBS generally across you know different researchers in different areas, and, and it seems a lot of the research has kind of gone, you know, particularly with with Horner and others, you know, towards kind of the the, the large large scale school wide kind of applications and and kind of those kinds of system pieces. And we've seen a lot of great research in that area um, in terms of kind of commute, the community sort of, you know, um, um, you know little thread of, uh, of research, you know, uh, there hasn't been as much. I mean, there certainly in the nineties, there was quite a bit, I know you, you did a lot and others did others, but as, as kind of the years went on more of the research, there were certainly some folks, I think there were some folks, you know, I think of folks like mostly folks kind of down, kind of, kind of in, you know, in, in, in the, in Florida, like Clark and Fox and Duda, and those folks seem to continue to, and Glenn Dunlop and others seem to continue to kind of do some of that more kind of community-based research. But a lot of other folks, you know, kind of didn't, and, and, and uh, didn't really kind of go that direction. And, 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 and PBS, I don't know if it lost steam, but it sort of just became, started to become kind of, when you said PBS, people said schools right away. That's sort of what was, was kind of, kind of triggered in people's minds but you on the other hand um um you know i i took took the work in a different direction um slightly in that you kind of uh took sort of the the sort of the standard kind of concepts which you've gone through you know quite elegantly uh, of pbs um but then you but then I, I, I one thing i've always liked about kind of you know talking to you and learning from you is and and many of many of my colleagues have also you know had the you know the the opportunity to work under you is that you 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 don't just stick in the stick in the in sort of the lane of of PBS and ABA and you and and you like to you like to draw on 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 knowledge and research from from other fields um, which. Has been a, a, a real, there's been a really big move lately, uh, particularly among younger behavior analysts, to kind of consider other fields more often. You know, if we're talking about trauma, then we want to look at social work. If we're talking about, you know, um, you know, uh, we often want to look at sort of medical and kind of health health professions and different things that can happen there. There's a lot of mental health kind of areas that that are that are that are that are starting, people are really starting to draw on. But for years, you've been drawing on research from from other areas, uh, in particular. Um, you know, and, and, and it really makes a lot of sense because most of your work is done with, with, with families on kind of like family systems kind of theory and, and, uh, and, uh, and another area called equal cultural theory, which I want to touch on, um, to really make this really kind of, um, you know, Almost a nice kind of twenty first century iteration of 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 community based PBS, and so I want to start. I want to kind of start diving into some of your research, but also, but 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 as we as we do that, I really want to hear more about kind of the this family systems piece. You you and I have talked. You've talked a lot about you know a guy named Jerry Patterson. I think folks would really like to hear about kind of his work as well as this whole eco cultural theory thing which i don't know if a lot of people would even have heard of but is also really interesting 
No, thank you for asking and posing that sort of area of my work. I certainly, it's where my passion is and where my, my research continues to lie. Mm -hmm. um, so as I mentioned, I think if, I, if there's a, if there's a um, origin story to this direction of my hmm. work, um, I've always been interested in families of children with disabilities and problem mm. behavior. Um, I've always been interested in parent training. I originally wanted to be a clinical psychologist. <clears throat> when I applied to the doctoral program at the University of Oregon back in 19, I applied in 1985, um, I wrote that I want to be in the interdisciplinary program. I want to combine clinical psychology and special education. Hmm. Because I do, I, I learned as a uh, teacher for four years in a high school where I tried to do parent training, I wasn't successful. Um, I, you know, my classroom was fine. We had really good supports. We had students with severe behavior challenges, severe learning, severe disabilities because I was trained well. You know, I was a student of Dr. Horner's. I, I learned how to teach. Um, I took a course with Ziggy Engelman. You know, I, I knew about direct instruction. We had, our classroom was fine. There were behavioral issues were, you know, just not a, a major theme. Learning was the theme. Um, but when the children went home, it was different and there were some pretty serious challenges. And I tried to, you know, on, I was a bachelor. I, you know, I, I didn't have a home to go to with someone waiting for me. So I would try and help these families. I'd go to their home. I try and build behavior support plans, but I just wasn't succeeding. And one of the, one of the experiences I had that really catalyzed my interest in getting the doctorate that I aimed was um, there was this, this young girl with Down syndrome and she, her morning was routine with her, her grandmother who was raising her because her mother was, had a drug addiction and so the grandmother had custody. It, it was an awful morning routine. She wasn't coming to school on time. She was having all kinds of issues with noncompliance in the morning and I tried to help. And I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I was getting up at six o'clock in the morning, going to their home, trying to do some, you know, coaching around you know, the plan that I hmm. developed with the grandmother. And it just wasn't working. And I was aware of the Oregon Social Learning Center. And I contacted them and said, you know, you know, is there is there a doctoral student who can help? Because this is really a dire situation. This is a grandmother, you know, she's got a some some illnesses related to old age and she's got this terrible situation with her child with Down syndrome. And so John Reed, the co-director of the Oregon Social Learning Center, who was the co-director with Jerry Patterson, said, Joe, you know, um, let's go and meet at the Frisco's. There was this tavern in downtown Eugene at the time. And he met me over a beer and I always remember him saying to me, Joe, I, I tell him the story. And he said, Joe, you know, I'm going to pull your fat out of the fire. <laughs> That's what he said, quote unquote, over some beers. Oh my. Um, and so he got a doctoral student involved, you know, who was trained in the Oregon social model method of parent training. And it's called the Oregon Social Learning Center's model of family therapy and basically solved the problem. I mean, within, you know, five or six weeks, no issue. And, and the mothers, the grandmothers, really happy and delighted with the doctoral hmm. student in clinical psychology. And the child's coming to school happily on time. And I was like, wow, that was terrific. 
that made a really big impression on me. And so I said, you know, and, and other, other of my students were other, other my students in the classroom, they were having, they were seeing counseling psychologists, but those counseling psychologists weren't able to help them because they didn't have special education knowledge, you know, instructional mm. technology knowledge. They could make them feel a better about the problem, manage their emotions more, but they couldn't solve the problem. Mm. I had the special education knowledge, but I didn't have the family systems knowledge, the clinical psychology knowledge, the therapeutic alliance development knowledge at that time. So, so I said to myself, you know, if we're going to help families of children with developmental disabilities and severe problem behavior, we're going to need to combine these two professions, clinical psychology and special education. So that's what I decided to do when I went back to get my doctorate. So I applied to the interdisciplinary program. I proposed a program where I would study both of these disciplines. I was accepted into the program. Uh, not to, to make a shorter story, I actually spent four years in Japan, but that's another story. But in 1989, I entered the program, um, but I was actually offered a, a doctoral position in developmental disability because there were some monies. And the monies were the, the first grant for positive behavior support, which at that time was called uh, the Research and Training Center on Non-Aversive Behavior Management. Right. That was the first grant from the federal government in the United States to build a technology of non-aversive behavior management for individuals mm. with severe disabilities. And I was accepted into that program. They, they said, well, you know, not to go into a long story, but that was the better place for me um, because it was funded and it was much more aligned with my my interests and the people there were people I knew, you know, Dr. Horner um, and others who were the people who started that program. So, um, so, 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 so now I'm landed there and I, I meet with Dr. Horner and I say, you know, I really want to, you know, this is like the fall of 1989. I, I really want to learn how to support families of children with developmental disabilities and very severe problem behavior. Hmm. That's my passion. And I wasn't able to do it successfully as a teacher. And I, I know that there's much new knowledge I need and I need it from the field of clinical psychology. I'm a special educator, I can do that. But I need this knowledge from clinical and counseling psychology. So Dr. Horner immediately goes to his bookshelf and pulls out a book and he says, well, then you need to read this book. And the book was Course of Family Process by Gerald R. Patterson. I'm holding mm -hmm. it right now. And so that, that was the launching pad for my doctoral program. And I spent my entire doctoral program uh, doing practicum after practicum after practicum with clin clinical psychologists, school psychologists, and counseling psychologists learning how to support families of children with developmental disabilities and severe problem behavior. I did that for four and a half years. Uh, one practicum after other, it was like continuous. And I had a chance, thanks to Dr. Reed, bless him. He allowed me to, to spend a one year reading with him at the Oregon Social Learning Center he allowed me to enter the 20-week, I think it was 20-week Oregon Social Learning Center's uh, family therapy program, like training program. 
which was mostly populated by clinical psychology majors. Okay. I was a special education doctoral student, and he allowed me into that program because I knew I was focused on families of kids with disability, and the other clinical psychologist students were not. Um, and so I was trained in the Oregon Social Learning Center's method of um, family therapy, which is brilliant. Um, and also, I, one of my tasks was to write a grant. That was my project with Dr. Reed. And so I said, you know, you, you've analyzed coercive processes in these children who are typically developing, but are, you know, heading toward a career as having a conduct disorder, or oppositional defiant disorder. And if that continues, they're going to become delinquents and maybe get in trouble with the law. That's the, that's the, that's the sequence that lies before those children. If you don't change their developmental pathway, that's what they mm. were studying and documented empirically. But no one's dec- documented this with our population, right? Mm-hmm. No one has done the research with families of kids with disability, mm. right? And someone needs to do this yeah. because these, these, these coercive processes are operating in these families, and there's no empirical evidence of this in our field. So I said... I'm going to write this grant. I'm going to replicate your work only with my population. Mm. And he says, well, good, go for it. Mm. So he helped me write the, the grant. It was a, it was, it was a assignment, right? Mm-hmm. But after I graduated, I actually packaged that document into a grant to the National Institutes of Health. Mm. And I submitted it to the National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development. And fortunately at that time, uh, the um, the chief of that uh, branch was someone steeped in the field of disabilities. Mm. She was one of the leaders of Project Teach. Mm. Um, and she saw that grant and it was funded. It was, a, it was called an RO3, a small research grant. Mm. Um, and um, so my task in that grant was to develop a method of measuring coercive and constructive processes, patterns of interaction that were coercive and patterns of interaction that were, that were constructive in families of children with disability. And we did that. And Dr. Horner helped and Jeff Sprague helped. Um, I had a wonderful um, uh, um, research assistant who was doing this work in the marriage field, doing pair. Uh, husband-wife interaction analysis. So she was really good at sequential analysis work. Ah. Um, I, Jerry, I mean, bless him, Jerry Patterson, um, I was running into some methodological issues during the study. And I said, you know, Dr. Patterson, could I meet with you? We're running into some methodological issues with our measurement system. And he says, well, why don't you, you know, he, he, he said, let's meet at this restaurant right across from the Fifth Street Market. This is Italian restaurant. Mm. And I remember he, you know, they, they cover the tables with paper and he started drawing all these diagrams of coercion and, you know, different ideas for overcoming my issue. Mm. And he said, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lend you our methodologist, Michael Stuhlmiller. And, you know, you're going to call him and he's going to help you solve this problem. Mm. And sure enough, and Michael Stuhlmiller is a wonderful guy, incredibly good with very complex analytical methods, right, of data, sequential Mm. analysis, et cetera. And he 
he helped us solve the problem. Hmm. It was a methodological issue with measurement. I, I don't want to go into the, the grasses no. of this, the weeds of it. Yep. But also, at that time, I contacted um, Roger Bakeman, who is the fa- one of the fathers of sequential analysis you know, work, and said, here's what we're doing. We're having some issues. Would you mind looking at our data and, and helping us as well? So I got help from, from Mike Stuhlmiller. I got help from Roger Bakeman, and together they solved the problem. Hmm. And what's really interesting, and uh, I was talking to Mike Stuhlmiller about this. When I went to Roger Bakeman to solve this methodological measurement issue for measuring sequential, we had a, we had a coding system. We were coding data, but we were getting really weird results. And Roger Bakeman looked at the, the weeds of our system. He says, you know, you have a confound in your system. Your, the way it's designed, it's, it's, it's double and triple counting events. And that's causing false positives. So he said, let me look at your data set and create a software program that will solve the problem. Oh my gosh. So he created, he created a software pro- program for us called Cycles. And it solved the problem. We could now purely measure four-step course of processes without interference from, from basically extraneous data that was irrelevant to that pattern of interaction. And then I went to Mike Stuhlmiller and I said, Mike, this is what we gave us and it's working. We're getting really clean measurements of course of processes now. He said, you know, Joe, this is pretty amazing. Usually, if you go to a methodologist, they want to fit your round peg into their square hole. Hmm. But you went to Dr. Bateman, and he said, you have a round peg. It doesn't fit my square hole, because we were using his sequential analysis technology, and it wasn't working for us. I'm going to create a round hole for you, so your peg will fit it. <laughs> and that's what he did. And he, says, he said, Dr. Mil- Stuhlmiller said, that's unheard of, right? Mm-hmm. And the point he was making is that, that showed a lot of professional humility, right, mm-hmm. on the part of Dr. Dr. Um, Bakeman. It also showed compassion. So Dr. Bakeman, as brilliant as he is, right, he showed compassion and you know flexibility and kindness to create a, something that worked for our system because it didn't work with his system. And so, so we were able to do it. We were actually able for the first time ever to measure four-step course of processes in families of children with disability. And that led to the next grant with NIH, which mm. was, okay, now that you can measure it, can you change it? Mm. And that was an R01, which was funded for, for, four year, for five years. And that's what I did through most of my first 10 or 15 years at the University of uh, British Columbia, and I'm, I still have some data to publish from that study when I can find the time, but it's still on my plate. Um, so so th- that's the piece on bringing in coercion theory into our work. Can, and, can you just elaborate a bit on, on what those four steps are? Oh, yes. So, sorry. What we were able to measure is two coercive processes, mm. a four-step escape-driven course of process and a four-step attention course of process. Mm. 
in the escape-driven course of process, there is a demand to do something like, you know, brush your teeth or get ready for bed or eat the food that, you know, is healthy for you, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, you know, transition off the computer. Yep. We have to leave. And then the child behaves badly. Mm-hmm. They scream, cry, tantrum, whatever they do. Yep. Then the parent withdraws a demand mm. or they reduce the demand. Sure. And when the parent withdraws or reduces the demand, the child settles down. Right. And if they they have a if they if they are quite involved in their disability, it may take time for them to settle down because they have to discriminate that the demand has been removed. Right. And the yes. the, the conditional pro, the um it's a conditional establishing operation. The context of the demand has been removed. Mm. I'm no longer in a stimulus array that suggests you're going to come back and ask me again. Right. So when that's clearly removed, then they settle down. And sometimes it takes a second. Sometimes it takes a minute. But once they discriminate that the demand context is gone, they settle yeah. down. Yeah. Exactly. So it's really important for behavior analysts to understand this, although it's not something that really appears in the behavior analytic literature, it appears in the clinical psychology literature, is that the first three steps of the course of process is what a functional assessment shows you, mm-hmm. right? Demand, problem behavior, withdraw the demand, that negatively reinforces the problem behavior, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes to escape behavior, right? Yep. But the functional assessment doesn't say what happens next. Mm. So what happens next is when the teacher or the parent, the parent withdraws the demand, the child settles down. Mm-hmm. And because the parent is also an organism who's responding to the laws of behavior, whether they know it or not, they are also negatively reinforced mm-hmm. because the problem behavior is aversive to them. And when they give in to the child and that demand and that problem behavior also goes away, they're negatively reinforced by the child for submitting to the child, mm-hmm. for removing the demand. Of course. Gotcha. Now, now I'm just going to talk about this logically. Mm-hmm. So what coercion theory does is it's, it, it's still within the, the world of social learning theory and behavior analysis, but it goes one extra step into the phenomena mm-hmm. of interaction. It reveals the, the full social interactive context, whereas a functional assessment stops at the third step mm. and doesn't re- recognize the, the next step. So essentially, when you do a functional assessment, I know this might be hard for people to get because we, we've so fallen in love with functional assessment, and mm-hmm. I, I, I love it too. I think it's essential. But I'm going to argue with you. If you I'm going to argue the case that it's – it is essential, but it may not be sufficient in some mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. Because let's just look at this logically. If you got a problem to solve and it has four parts, and you do an analysis that reveals three parts of the problem to you, you will build a plan based on three parts of the problem. Yes. But you're missing one quarter of the problem. Yes. So what does that mean? Do you, do you have a robust plan? Do you have a plan that's going to endure over time? Will it sustain? Will it be durable? And that's where things begin to be, mm-hmm. become fragile. Mm-hmm. And as you know, you know, behavior analysts may say, we in our field may say, you know, it's so hard to, to work with families or so hard to work with teachers mm-hmm. or teaching assistants. Well, why? 
Well, if you really allow yourself to be humble and self-critical for a moment, you may realize maybe what I'm doing is not sufficient. Because mm-hmm. it was sufficient, you would think, well, we'd be able to succeed together. I believe, and my data kind of shows this out, that a functional assessment has to be augmented with a course of process assessment. Mm. The, the parent needs to understand that, yeah, yeah, you can do the behavior support plan and prevent as much as you, as we can empower you to do so, teach as much as we empower you to do so, t- reinforce the desired behavior as much as we empower you to do so, and that's a beautiful thing. But when push comes to shove and the child engages in the major problem behavior, you've got to make sure that you don't give in to it. Mm-hmm because you'll sustain the course of process. Yes. And you will be, you will because of your history, it's, a, it's an invisible sediment, a history of giving in to the child and getting negative reinforcement. And it's usually the case when, when, we, when families come to us for support, they've been in these course of processes for months, if not years. And in any organism that's experiencing negative reinforcement 100, 500, 1,000 times, don't think it's gonna be easy for them to make that change. It'll be very hard for them to make that change. And Mm. you need to understand that. And it's not a blame thing. If you were in that situation, it'd be hard for you to make that change. And if you understand that, it's no, well, you can't say, well, I can do it. You know, look, I did it. The the kid changed in two days. Well, you don't Mm -hmm. have that history. The kid's operating freshly with you. You'd be able to establish a new stimulus control pathway with the child. But that parent has a huge history behind them that makes it more difficult for them. Mm-hmm. And if you understand that, you will augment your behavior support plan with more things to help the parent understand that process and overcome it. Hmm. And you'll and this is the other thing that Dr. Patterson discovered in his work that's largely invisible in our work as behavior analysis if we don't pay attention to the psychological literature. When a parent is locked in a course of process for their, with their child for months and years, and you finally come to them and offer behavioral support, they're a thinking human being, right? They've been giving into their child for, for months, if not years, whether it's attention or escape or a preferred item, you know, tangibly driven, escape driven, mm-hmm. or, or attention driven course of processes. Sure. They will have their own theory about it. Yes. And, and I can tell you, what, and this is what Jerry Patterson teaches us, that when these parents are locked in these courts of process, they have their own theory about it, which also interferes with change. So you have, can't only identify the behavioral aspects of the problem. You've got to look at the cognitive aspects, too, from the parent's point of view. For example, mm-hmm. I'm working with a family from China, and they really believe that if they don't give in to their child, they'll break the loving bond. It'll be shattered. Mm-hmm. I work with another mother who, you know, is Caucasian and comes from an Eastern European culture. She believes that if she doesn't give in to the child, she will create emotional damage that will be for a lifetime. I have another parent who dresses their child every day like they're a little prince or princess. Mm. And their theory is, I have a special relationship with my child. Only I can dress them. Mm. Of course, what's happened is, the course of process that works so well that the child never has to do anything. They just stand there like a prince or a princess and the right. parent puts their clothes on and they accept that. 
But mm. the parents' theory is that I have a special God-given relationship with this child, and only I can do this, and it's special, right? And now yeah. you you have to work very delicately with those theories because it's a belief system that's developed over months or years. And that's what Jerry Patterson teaches us, that you've got to do some cognitive behavioral therapeutic work as well if you really want to break through some of these coercive processes that families are caught up in. So that's what I learned from clinical psychology. Does that make sense? The third secret word is Skinner. That, that does make sense. Um, um, I want to hear about sort of the other theory as well, but before we go there, it makes me think, you, you make a lot of good points about, you know, being really, really careful and really with some of these sort of delicate kind of situations. This is not training behavior analysts get. No, it's not. Um, and something I've been talking about a lot with colleagues and supervisees about how, you know, um, you know, there's there's a few behavior analysts out there that I know uh, right now, um, you know, that have that that have got you know they maybe they got their mass got their master's degree or whatever, but then they went on and did a counseling degree afterwards yeah. um, because they needed some those those some of those even just those, some of those basic skills for for working with families, working with group homes, working with anyone, just working with people, you know, those 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 people engagement skills, which are primarily counseling skills. Um, do you have any thoughts on kind of why? And again, obviously, when you're teaching your courses, you're 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 touching on some of these things, which is awesome, and and folks are lucky to kind of be able to make contact with that. But it's it's just always behooved me that 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 behavior analysis programs don't include a counseling component when, you know, a big part of our job is that. Yeah, I think. Yes, that is another great, you know, you've been doing these podcasts for long, so long, Ben, that you ask brilliant questions. That's mm. a brilliant question, and I really thank you for it. Um, I want to say two things in mm -hmm. kind of a layered way. Sure. Uh, one is recognizing your point, mm -hmm. then bringing it back to why I wanted to study clinical and counseling psychology so that I can help these sure. families be empowered with the functional things I needed, the necessary mm -hmm. and sufficient things I needed to help these families, yeah. but also some promising words about the field of behavior analysis as mm -hmm. it is today. Mm -hmm. um, in the field of clinical and counseling psychology, they do research on what does it take to help people change? Mm -hmm. And one of the things they discovered is something called the therapeutic alliance. Yes. And there are they, people like one of my colleagues, uh, Rob Beatty here actually does research on therapeutic alliance. What are the features mm. of it? And you can use the word collaborative partnership too. They're very related. You know, in PBS, we talk about forming collaborative partnerships with families that have qualities. Of, uh, there's equality, there's trust, there's competence, there's commitment. It has all these features. And it, it really aligns quite closely with the notion of a therapeutic alliance, which has, uh, it's a therapeutic alliance toward change. There's a shared commitment mm -hmm. toward what we're doing here is promoting change. Mm -hmm. You will change, and I, as a therapist, will learn to change too as I study you and learn more how to help you. So we'll both change. But your job is to change in such a way that you change the habit patterns you have or if you're working with your children, how you mm -hmm. parent, right? 
And what the research shows, and they do this large group design stuff and these statistical analyses, 40 to 60% of the variance in therapeutic work is in the relationship. When they parse out what really allowed this particular practice to work, Mm -hmm. 40 to 60% of the variance was due to the relationship, not the technique, Mm -hmm. not the procedure only. That came Mm -hmm. up to 60 to also, you know, 40 to 60% of the variance. You have to do the procedure with fidelity, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but the relationship is just as important. Yes. And so if you don't know how to develop trust, if you don't know how to build this therapeutic alliance and know its features, you can know all the behavior analysis in the world. You can be a master of the language, but you're going to have a hard time helping people change their behavior. And, you know, it's also called a working alliance because you could be working with teacher. You need a working alliance with teachers. You need a working alliance with teaching assistants. You need a working alliance with group home staff. And it begins with trust because, you know, I like this quote and I share it with my students. Uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt once said, um, no one cares what you know until you show them how much you care. It's a, so you, you really have to build trust. You have to show that you care. Now, I've been introduced since we last talked to a concept that George Singer, one of my colleagues and friends, has given me. It's some really interesting research on the physiology, the physiology of the brain as it relates to therapeutic work, um, the, the physiology of a, of, a, of a client's brain in the concept of therapeutic work. It's called polyvagal theory. This is really mm. interesting. And mm-hmm. basically what, what they've been able to do is show that when you, when you develop a really trusting relationship where every part mm-hmm. of your being your nonverbal behavior, your verbal behavior, your emotional tone, the way you look, the way you hold your eyes, the way you hold your thoughts, all communicate to the client, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. I'm here to truly help you. I'm not here for me. I'm not trying to here to prove my competence. I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, make sure I maintain my identity as a competent behavior analyst or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm here Mm -hmm. for you. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you in in an authentic way that you experience as help. When you communicate that through every every ounce of your being, what happens to that client is really interesting at a physiological level. They've measured this. The activity of the brain Mm. moves from the primitive part of the brain, the cerebellum, the lower part, to the upper part of the brain, the... I'm sorry, from the lower part of the brain to the upper part, the the frontal lobe. They actually Mm. see this movement of that client's focus, attentiveness, um, brain activity to the frontal lobe where flexibility is, where new thinking lies, where new developments Mm. lie. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And, And the argument, and those who are therapists now are adding this to their way of thinking about their work, is they they cultivate in themselves and their students that persona so that they can really reach clients who have Mm -hmm. challenges, whether it's parenting challenges or personal challenges, to learn things that improve their well-being and their mental health. And you can actually go into websites now 
and, and see workshops on how to move toward that type of therapy alliance. And I think behavior analysts would do well to um, begin to pay attention to this literature. Um, now, having said that, I also want to say something really encouraging about the field of behavior analysis in this, in this mm -hmm. light. If, yes. you, if you subscribe to behavior analysis in practice, the last mm -hmm. few years have been incredibly encouraging in terms of what is the contents that are appearing in these journals. It's clear that there's a young generation of behavior analysts who recognize the value of other disciplines and mm -hmm. how we don't have to marry ourselves to behavior analysis and ignore other disciplines and then think to myself, well, that's because I'm showing loyalty to my discipline. Actually, mm -hmm. what you learn is your core knowledge of behavior analysis is essential, and I'm never going to compromise that. Mm -hmm. The laws of behavior are operating all the time, and you have, and the better you mm -hmm. understand that, the better you'll be able to create effective and efficient change programs. Mm -hmm. But other things are operating too, and other disciplines bring those to your to your attention, and so you can complement your knowledge by adding other disciplinary knowledge, such as mm -hmm. knowledge of therapeutic alliance development, mm -hmm. um, and coercion theory and you know as you had mentioned and i will talk about shortly uh the value of ecocultural theory and having a much more uh ethnographic understanding of the family and ecocultural mm -hmm. understanding of the family um, all those things do not diminish your knowledge of behavior analysis it augments it mm -hmm. it actually allows yes. it to operate in complex environments that have many variables operating one of mm -hmm. which one set of which one class of which is behavior analysis, but there's other classes of, of um, uh, phenomena occurring too. The family system is occurring, right? And that's mm -hmm. complex. The relationships you have with the parent are occurring and you have to attend to that too. Um, and so that's what, we've, that's what I have been taught to do by my mentors. Yeah augment my knowledge of behavior analysis yes. with other disciplines that 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 fortify and strengthen its ability that this behavior analytic knowledge to take hold in the lives of these families as one father told me after they learned to uh, transform the behavior of their child with severe disabilities and severe problem behavior i mean it was really crisis level when, when i met the family in a year level about a year later, they were basically they had a summer where there was no problem behavior, um, and the family found that to be pretty remarkable. And you know, stress went down, and certain stress-induced issues in the family began to um, descend as well. The father yeah. said to me, "Joe, I think I know what you're doing." you're teaching us to be behavior analysts. Is that right? I said, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not using the language, but that's what I'm teaching them to do. I'll give you an, another example. A mother learns to use positive contingency statements and she's brilliant at it. You know, do this and this will happen. After this, this will happen. Yeah. And she's elegant at it. She's, you know, she'll go any situation. She'll figure out how to motivate the child by seeing the natural reinforcer available, just bring it to her attention and do this and then that will happen. Mm. And now that she's able to help the child and motivate the child to behave well throughout the day through these very mm. elegantly arranged contingency statements. 
Um, and this is how she describes it. You know, Joe, when I make a promise, when I make a promise to my child, I keep it. And when I keep it, she trusts me. Now, that's the language of poetry. I can turn that mm -hmm. into behavior analytic language. When I, when, I, um, when I engage in the discriminative stimulus of a contingency statement, you mm -hmm. engage in this target behavior, and then you'll get a functional reinforcer that I know you value. Mm -hmm. And then I make sure I deliver that functional reinforcer contingent on you engaging in that target behavior, I will have strength in that behavior. And so mm -hmm. the next time I do it over time, I will build stimulus control th from the presentation of positive contingency statements. When I mm -hmm. use a positive contingency statement, I will have stimulus control um, and you will then respond. Now that's sense. pure behavior analytic talking, but as in what the mother said, it's the exact same yes. thing. So, so we yes. as behavior analysts, analysts need to understand the poetry of our methodology. What is it? Mm. How would that parent say it? And listen to them. And they'll mm -hmm. say something that's brilliant. And then maybe mm. now you can borrow that to the parent who's skeptical about using positive contingency statements, but truly understands from a stimulus equivalence point of view, the power of mm. promise. I don't think there's a parent in the world who, who doesn't believe the importance of keeping your promises. But I would say a lot of parents would question whether they want to use positive contingency statements. So do you, so do you see that point? Does that make sense? I do. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, folks. So this concludes part one of my interview with uh, Dr. Jill Lucician. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And stay tuned next week when we'll release uh, part two. Cheers, everybody.